You're going to need a Bible this morning, and I'd like you to find the last chapter of the book of Exodus. There's some notes in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along and see where we're headed this morning. About four months ago, we started working our way through the book of Exodus. This is our last Sunday to talk about this great book. Before we jump in, let me give you a little bit of a heads up about what's coming, just so you know what to expect the next couple of weeks. We're going to spend, after we wrap up Exodus this morning, eight weeks talking about wisdom, and we're going to look through the book of Proverbs and think about what Proverbs has to say about wisdom and how that applies to our life. Over the summer, just to give you a heads up for that as well, we're going to look at the book of James, and we're going to title that series, Faith That Works. And we're just going to work verse by verse through the book of James. But this morning we have one last chapter in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40. And we'll try to put a few things in place before we jump in and work our way through this text. Number one, in the Bible, repetition is often used to indicate importance. Repetition is often used to indicate importance. I realize that when you read through the book of Exodus, the first half is very, very exciting, and the back half just sort of slows down to a crawl. And there's a lot of repetition. For example, in Exodus 25 to 31, God tells Moses, this is how you make the tabernacle. And then in Exodus 35 to 39, it says, this is how Moses made the tabernacle. And parts of it are just word for word, repeated verbatim. Then you get to the last chapter, and we're going to read it in a minute. There's repetition even in the last chapter, because in the first part of Exodus 40, God says to Moses, this is how I want you to actually set it up, and this is when I want you to actually set this tabernacle up. And in the middle part of Exodus chapter 40, it says, this is exactly how Moses set it up and exactly when he set it up. And just word for word, you almost read the same thing twice. I realize it's not nearly as exciting as the first half with the plagues and the miracles and and the Red Sea and the, the bread in the wilderness and all those exciting things, but repetition sometimes makes us slow down and think about what's really important. The whole book of Exodus has been building to this. This is the end. The end is not just that they get out in the wilderness and then everything's okay. The end is that they get out and they get to be with God and the details that we read repeated and that sometimes we get frustrated with are really, really important. They were especially important for the Hebrew people. Look, when we start talking about the tabernacle, some of you have maybe visited tabernacle reconstructions where you've walked through something that is built to be like the tabernacle. You can get on Google Images, and you can find all sorts of pictures and diagrams. Some of you in the back of your Bible, maybe even, you have a picture or a study help that shows you this is what the tabernacle must have looked like. You realize the Hebrews had none of that. They had the back half of the book of Exodus. And almost all of them, save the high priest, almost all of them would never in their life walk into this tent. How would they know what it was like? How would they know what happened there? How would they know how it was decorated or what wasn't there? Well, they read the back half of the book of Exodus. So repetition sometimes shows us what is important. We're going to talk about that more this morning. Next, the tabernacle was designed to be an experience of heaven on earth. This was the place where God came to live among his people. Originally, that happened in the Garden of Eden, God living with his people. 
When you fast forward to the end of the scriptures, you know that's going to happen one day in the New Jerusalem. God's going to dwell with his people. But right here in Exodus 40, it happens at the tabernacle. In this tent that God instructs them on, that Moses puts up, this is where God comes to be with his people. And the timing was significant. The events of Exodus 40 occurred exactly one year from the Exodus itself. And I'll let you go back and check the references. But it's exactly one year to the day that they walk through the Red Sea and they walk out of Egypt free that God says to Moses, now is the time. Now is the time. You've been working on this tent. You're going to put it up and I'm going to fill it with my glory. So all of that brings us to the big idea and it's very simple. God saves his people so they can enjoy his presence. Notice what the big idea is not. The big idea is not God saves his people so they can enjoy the promised land. The big idea is not God saves his people so they can enjoy heaven. The big idea in Exodus and the big idea for us today is God saves his people so that they can enjoy him and they can enjoy his presence. So if you have your Bible... Take it out, open it up, turn it on. Exodus 40, we're going to read the entire chapter. The scripture says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, You shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may be most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and the stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him and he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle, he laid its bases, he set up its frames, he put in its poles, he raised up its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark. He put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and he arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and he set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and he offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. Let's pray. Father, give us understanding this morning. Help us to read this old story. Help us to see it as important. Help us to see it as relevant. Help us to see the truths in this story that are true today, just like they were true thousands of years ago. Father, give us ears to hear your word. Give us hearts to receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Americans love stories with happy endings. I know that if you watch the award shows, they tend these days to give the awards to the movies that have bad endings and they just sort of end miserably. But if you look at the movies that Americans actually pay money to go see, it's not those monies. It's typically the ones that have a happy ending at the end. And we just should admit that while we love happy endings, sometimes our definition of what makes a happy ending is a little bit odd. For example, in many movies, you can fill it with as much death and suffering and slaughter and pain as you want to, as long as the main characters make it to the end. It doesn't matter who dies along the way. You can kill off thousands and thousands and thousands of peripheral extras. As long as the hero or the heroine makes it to the end, We see the credits roll and we breathe a sigh of relief and say, ah, well, that ended nicely. And I'll give you just one example of this. There was a movie in 2004 called The Day After Tomorrow. It was about apocalyptic world-ending climate change. And basically, millions of people die. But good news, in the end, the heroes survive. And there's a movie critic, he's passed away, but Roger Ebert said this. This is his review. Billions of people died, but at least the major characters survived. Los Angeles, leveled by multiple tornadoes. New York, buried under ice and snow. The United Kingdom, flash frozen. Lots of the northern hemisphere wiped out for good measure. Thank goodness that Jack, Sam, Laura, Jason, and Dr. Lucy Hall survived. And the credits roll and we smile and say, oh, that was nice. Happy ending. You know, when you read through the book of Exodus, we know the end, so sometimes we miss the tension. But if you don't know how it's going to end, 
there should be a little bit of tension as you approach the back end of the book. And the tension in your mind should be, is this going to end well or not for these people? I mean, God did some amazing things in the front half to bring them out to save them. But all along the way, they're rotten, right? I mean, they're rotten to the core. And they grumble about how God has not provided for them. Then he provides and they grumble about how he's provided for them. They talk about wishing they could go back to Egypt. They talk about, we wish we could just die now. They accuse God of sadism, saying God just brought us out here to kill us and torture us. And just a few weeks ago, we saw that they break the commandment of the Lord and they set up a golden cow statue and bow down to worship it. And if you don't know the end, all along the way, you may be thinking to yourself, how's this going to end for these people? Is this going to have a happy ending or a sad ending? Is this going to be a a comedy or a tragedy, to use the old classical Greek definitions? And I guess when you get to the end of the book, it's a little bit of both. What you do see in the last chapter is a bunch of threads that have been woven all the way through the book of Exodus pulled tight and pulled to some sort of conclusion. And this morning, I want you to see those threads. I want you to see those ideas that we could trace all the way through the book. You find them in this last chapter. I want you to see that they're important for us today. They have meaning and truth and significance for us today. And then ultimately, how they point us to Jesus. So here we go. Exodus 40, the culmination of several themes found throughout the book. Number one, God intends to dwell with his people. He intends to dwell with his people. Why did God save these people from slavery in the first place? Well, it wasn't that they were moral. It wasn't that they were deserving. It wasn't that they were good. It wasn't that they were you know, so powerful and mighty that God needed them in some way. He saved them, we realize when you get to the end, so that they could be with him, so that he could come and live among them. Here's a quote from a Bible scholar named Dr. Cole, R. Allen Cole. It is God's aim and purpose to live in the midst of his people. That's his aim and that's his purpose, to be with his people. That was true in Eden, God with his people. It will be true in the end, in the new Jerusalem. And we see it in Exodus 40. Despite their stubbornness, despite their griping, despite their whining, despite their idolatry, God's intention is to live with his people. Number two. God's purposes will not be frustrated. It really didn't matter how stubborn they were. It didn't matter how much they whined or complained. God's purposes are not going to be frustrated. When you get to the end of the book, you realize it all plays out in the end exactly like God wanted it to play out. His purposes will not be frustrated. We'll come back to that. Number three, God's highest aim is his own glory. His highest aim is his own glory. This is major in the book of Exodus. If you get anything from Exodus, this may be the idea that you've got to walk away with. It runs all the way through the book, and you see it in two different trajectories. On the one hand, you see God seeking his glory by saving his people. And on the other hand, we've talked about this, God seeks his own glory in the judgment and the destruction of his enemies. And both of those have to be held together to understand what the book of Exodus is telling you. So look at these verses. The first one is from Exodus 6-7. God says to his people, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you will know 
Circle the word know. You will know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I'm saving you so that you know the truth about me. I'm saving you, not because you're so good, but so that I get the credit. And I look good for doing it. So he saves his people. Why? For his own glory. What about the other side of that equation? Look at Exodus 14, 4. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. We're talking about the Red Sea incident. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. He's not going to save Pharaoh, and he's not going to save the Egyptians. He's going to bring judgment on their heads, and the purpose is that he gets glory over them. Listen to me. When you get this truth drilled down deep into your spiritual bones, and you realize that from Genesis to Revelation, everything that God does, he does for the end of his own glory, whether he is saving his people or whether he's judging his enemies. Everything that he does is for his own glory. It will change the way you read the Bible. It will change the way you live your life. It will change the way you suffer and hear bad news when you receive bad news and when you experience suffering. It will change the way you think about your purpose in living. When you get this idea deep in your bones that everything God does, he does for his own glory. That's true when he saves his people. And that's true when he judges his enemies. If that's true, it's not surprising when you come to Exodus 40, look at verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and what was it that filled the tabernacle? It was the glory of the Lord. Verse 35, this cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's God's end. That's the end game for him. And everything that he does is to bring glory to himself. Number four, God expects his people to obey his commands. We've already seen God write these ten commandments on tablets of stone and give them to Moses. In this passage, we're not focused on the ten commandments, but we're focused on the tabernacle. And God's saying, do it this way, do it this way, do it this way, do it this way. And in that middle section... Did you notice what was repeated over and over and over again? As the Lord commanded Moses. As the Lord commanded Moses. He commanded him to do it exactly this way. And to his credit, in this moment, Moses and the people do it exactly like God wants them to do it. You may look at that verse or that idea. God expects his people to obey his commands. And you may say, well, of course he does. How obvious is that? How stupid is that? How how childish is that? Everybody knows that. That's just basic. I promise you that there are millions of people living in the Bible Belt in the United States of America who don't understand that. They think that God has graciously saved them so that they can do what they want to do with their life. Don't pass this lightly. The God who sovereignly and graciously saves his people for his own glory fully expects his people to obey him. You say, does that mean I'm earning my salvation? Does that mean I'm working for my salvation? Absolutely not. That's not the order in the book of Exodus. First he saves them, then he gives them the law. But the fact that he saved them first out of his grace in no way nullifies the fact that he expects them to obey once he has saved them. 
God expects his people to obey. Number five, sinful people need a sinless substitutionary sacrifice in order to enjoy God's presence. We've talked about this multiple times through the book of Exodus. What we need if we're going to enjoy the presence of God is a sinless substitutionary sacrifice. And I don't know if you noticed, but there's two of the most shocking verses. I think the most shocking verses in the whole book of Exodus right here at the end in chapter 40. Exodus 40, 34 and 35. Look in your Bible one more time. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. They've got it all set up. They did it exactly like God wanted them to do. He brought them out so they could be together. They set it up, and the cloud covers it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And you say, ah, finally, God together with his people, his people with their God. But look at verse 35. Moses was not able to enter tent of meeting. Why? It's because the glory of the Lord was there. He wasn't able to enter because the holy, holy, holy God condescended and came down to this tent and manifested his presence and his glory. And Moses, the sinner, is not able to enter. Why not? Because sinful people cannot enjoy the presence of a holy God without a sinless substitutionary sacrifice. That's why when you end Exodus 40 and you flip the page, what's the next book? Leviticus. It's all about sacrifice. It's all about a substitute. It's all about holiness and being sinless. That's what Moses needed, and that's what we needed. And it's built into the details of the tabernacle. Look in the text. Let's just work backwards from the outside of the tabernacle in. Look at verse 8. There's an outer wall. No one can just walk up to this thing. It's a reminder that sin is a barrier that keeps you from God. Look at verse 7. There's a basin for washing. It's this reminder that your sin is like a stain that needs to be cleaned. Look at verse six. There's an altar for animal sacrifices. Why? Because sin always leads to death. Verse five, there's an altar for incense. It's in the holy place. It's this reminder that we are praying for God to be merciful to us. Look at verse four. There's a table on one side with bread, a reminder that only God can provide for his people. Verse four, there's a lamp on the opposite side in the shape of a tree. It's a reminder of the tree of life that we need access to. Verse 3, in front of the ark, there's this screen. And you read earlier in Exodus that there's cherubim woven into this screen. Why? It's a reminder of Eden. When God's people are kicked out of the garden and God places this cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the way. You can't come into my presence any longer. It's all right there. Verse 2, there's the ark, the throne of God where the glory of God resides in this tent. And the text tells you that when the glory of God comes down, Moses is not able to enter the tent. Look, we are meeting this morning thousands of years after Exodus 40. On a resurrection Sunday, an Easter Sunday, and if we're here to remind ourselves of anything as we wrap up the book of Exodus, it's this. Our hope is not in a tent, and our hope is not in a a temple. Our hope is not in Aaron and some priesthood. 
Our hope is not in the blood of bulls and goats and lambs that were sacrificed at this tent. Our hope is in Jesus. And every idea, every truth, every thread you trace through the book of Exodus is ultimately not taking you to Moses. It's not taking you to the tabernacle. It's not taking you to Aaron in the sacrificial system. It's not taking you just to Leviticus. It's taking you all the way to the cross. And we'll end with this idea. Each of these themes is ultimately fulfilled. Each of these five themes in the life, the death, the resurrection, and the return of Jesus. That's the only way you make sense of it. Because you end the book of Exodus and you say, great, God finally came to be with his people, but the leader of the people can't even go into his presence. What good is that? Well, keep reading. Make it through Leviticus. Make it through the prophets. Make it through the book of Psalms. Make it all the way to the New Testament and meet Jesus in his life in his death, in his resurrection, and his promise to return. I don't know if you're supposed to give people homework on Easter Sunday, but I'm giving you homework, okay? I get really mad at my kids' teachers when they give us homework over spring break or long weekends. I just say, we're not doing that. We're not going to do it. But you got to do this, okay? You don't get to back out just because it's Easter Sunday. We're not going to look at all these verses, I just want to tick through them quickly and help you see how all of these themes find their fulfillment in Jesus. Number one, God's going to dwell with his people. What do we read in John 1? We read Jesus came to tabernacle among us. And you fast forward to the book of Revelation, we read the dwelling place of God is with man. He will be with his people and they will be with their God. It's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Number two, God's purposes will not be frustrated. Acts chapter 2 and 4, they say the crucifixion was dark. It was a terrible day. Good Friday was one of the worst days in history. However, it all happened exactly according to God's plan. To quote the book of Acts, it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and all that happened was what God had predestined to take place. His purposes will not be frustrated. Number three, His highest aim is his own glory. What does Jesus pray on the night before the crucifixion in John 17? The first thing he prays, he says, Father, glorify the Son. He wasn't thinking about you first. He wasn't thinking about me first. His highest end and his highest aim was his own glory. Revelation 5, we read it earlier. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess on the earth, in heaven, under the earth, everywhere that Jesus Christ is. Is Lord. Number four, he expects his people to obey his commands. Luke 9, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he's got to take up his cross daily and follow me. And then later in the Gospel of John, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Number five, sinful people need a sinless substitutionary sacrifice. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews, particularly chapter 8, 9, and 10. We don't need Aaron and his sons with their fancy get-up and the anointing oil. We need Jesus, the great high priest, who doesn't offer the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, but offers his own blood, the book of Hebrews says, to secure an eternal redemption. I'll read you one verse, Hebrews 9.27. He, that's Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Listen, for those of you who have trekked all the way through the book of Exodus with us, end with this understanding. We're not building up to a tent. We're not building up to Moses or Aaron or some priesthood or these sacrifices. We're building up and we're being pointed to Jesus.
And the good news that we have about Jesus Christ is the happiest of all endings. And it's the complete opposite of so many of the happy endings we see in the movie theaters today. You go to the movies and you see a happy ending where thousands of peripheral people are killed. Seemingly innocent people killed, but we rejoice that the main characters lived. In this story, it's exactly the opposite. Guilty people get to live because the main character, the hero, willingly offers himself as a sacrifice. Three days later, he's raised from the dead. And the Bible says that's good news. That's the ultimate happy ending, that guilty people can go free because of the sinless substitutionary sacrifice that Jesus made when he died on the cross. For those of you who haven't trekked through Exodus with us, maybe you're here from out of town, maybe you're here just because it's Easter, My prayer for you this week, all week long, has been, if you just jump into the book of Exodus on this very last week as we end this series, is that you understand this idea. What Jesus has done for you, what Jesus has done for sinners, is not just so that we can come to church on Easter Sunday. It's not just so that we can sort of do our own thing and feel good about ourselves, but it's so that we can enjoy his presence. That's the big idea of the passage. That's the big idea of the book of Exodus. That's probably the big idea of the Bible in a very real sense. God saves his people so that they can enjoy his presence. I'm going to ask you to bow. We're going to end with prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the book of Exodus. We're thankful for the gospel truths that we see on display in this book. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus, our hero, dying and being brought back to life so that we who are guilty could live. Father, I pray for those in the room and I pray that in the busyness of an Easter Sunday, in the busyness of serving here at Emmanuel, in the busyness of preparing lunch, in the busyness of getting everyone dressed and ready, I pray that we would just take a moment Father, as your people, to enjoy your presence and to thank you and praise you for who you are, to acknowledge all that you've done for us, Father, and to join the myriads and the myriads and the thousands and the thousands in heaven who are bowing before the throne, before the Lion of Judah, before the Lamb that was slain, before Jesus. And Father, we add our voices to that worship. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.